We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I am so excited and not a little astonished to announce that I am coming to Australia. I will be live in the Sydney Opera House on the 26th of February, 2024. That's never a sentence I thought I would say. I am so, so lucky and so grateful. I know that Taylor Swift is playing that night, but if you have failed, see what I did there, to get tickets to see Tay Tay, come and see me at the Sydney Opera House, 26th of February, 2024. And then on the 28th of February, 2024, I will be at the Art Centre Melbourne at 8pm. I am so grateful to all of my lovely Australian listeners. You have been with me from the start of this crazy endeavour and I am really, really giddy with anticipation at the thought of meeting you all. I can promise you an evening full of laughter, full of discussion of life and love and failure and everything in between. You'll get a chance to ask your questions and to have your book signed. And I hope I get a chance to meet you all in person and to say thank you in person. So you can book your tickets now either via the websites for Sydney Opera House or the Art Centre Melbourne, or you can go to my website, elizabethday.org. I have put links in the show notes and I just cannot wait to get to your fine country and to say hello in person. See you there. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Arlo Parks is a singer, songwriter and poet. Her debut album, Collapsed in Sunbeams, was released when she was just 21 and earned her two Grammy nominations, a Brit Award and the Mercury Music Prize. Her second, My Soft Machine, was released earlier this year and is a deeply personal work, a narration of Parks' experiences as she navigates her 20s. Now 23, she is still extraordinarily young to have managed such success, but her music and her lyrics have always signalled an older soul. 
there is a candid tenderness to her sound that gives it a sweet kind of power. Little wonder, perhaps, that her fans now include Billie Eilish and Lily Allen. On tour, she has opened for Harry Styles and played the Pyramid Stage at Glastonbury. She was raised in West London to a Parisian-born mother. Parks could speak French before she learned English. She now lives in Los Angeles, and perhaps her ease in multiple spaces and cultures is what makes her music so translatable to our own intimate moments. This month marks the publication of her first volume of poetry, The Magic Border, a collection of never-before-seen poems and song lyrics. Florence Welsh has already called it an embrace of a book. I would never want to prescribe a particular reaction in my readers, Parks writes in the introduction, but I would hope for your responses to be in the realm of softness. Arlo Parks, welcome to How to Fail. Hello, thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. I wanted to start by asking what softness means to you. Mm, something I've been thinking about a lot recently, actually, especially having done like my first readings in the last few days. And I think for me, I equate softness with tenderness. And I think especially in a world that has a lot of hardness within it, I like the idea of kind of remaining soft, allowing myself to be moved by things and moving through the world in a way that expresses wonder and is still in touch with my inner child as well. And yeah, it's just at the core of my work and at the core of who I am, I think. How difficult is it to retain that softness, that sense of wonder, when you are working predominantly in a music industry that isn't renowned for its respect <laughs> of softness? Yeah, I don't know. I think it comes from the community, the people that I've kind of drawn in. And I feel like you kind of, I don't know, you attract what you give out in that sense. And I think a lot of the artists around me have that sense of sensitivity and being emotional. And I think artists in general are very kind of sensitive people. And I think even though the industry as a whole can be quite a harsh, urgent place, I feel like the people within it are often very gentle and lovely. Does that resonate with you, that idea of you being an older soul in a younger person's body? I guess. Yeah, I think in a way. I think... I don't know. I've been in the music industry technically for six years, even though I am only 23. I don't know. I like to think that I still have a sense of youthfulness and playfulness. But I think having been surrounded my whole life by older friends and older people, I've kind of absorbed a bit of that energy, definitely. Mm. Well, congratulations on The Magic Border, which mm. is a beautiful book, both in terms of its content, but also how it's presented it looks beautiful and you collaborated with your friend Daniel didn't you the photographer yeah would you tell us how that collaboration came about yeah so we actually became friends because I was just such a fan of his photography and the romance and the intimacy and I saw a little article in ID magazine I think that he had done this kind of documentation of his friendship with this other person and I reached out to him I was like I just think what you do is beautiful we arranged to have like a long walk on the heath and it ended up being like four or five hours long became friends in that sense and I think when I was bringing the poetry book together I immediately thought wow, there are actually these poems that feel like spiritual twins of some of Daniel's photographs. And I was like, it might be interesting to have something that is kind of multimedia in that form. So we just sat down, we just put on some ambient music and we went through his archives, 20 years of photos, and just kind of selected photographs that felt somehow bonded to certain poems. And I think it gave it 
this additional dimension of feeling and all these characters that he'd kind of photographed over his lifetime, lovers, parents, friends he no longer knew. I think it really resonated with the essence of this book. Mm. And how does it differ, if it does, your creation of a poem contrasted with your creation of a song or a piece of music? Is Mm. there a difference in how you create it? Definitely, definitely. I think because I'm not very concerned with traditional form within poetry, I think for me it feels like a more fluid, I guess, stream of consciousness adjacent practice. But then with songwriting, because I guess I kind of work within the more structured world of like pop music, I guess, you know, there's a verse, there's a pre-chorus, there's a chorus. You have to be economical with your language. You have to distill what's often something massively complicated into a few lines. And so I guess I see poetry as something where I can edit myself a little bit less. I can whittle at the marble a little bit less. I can be a little bit more raw. So I think that's the main difference. So when you're doing a song lyric, is there a lot of editing involved? Yeah, there is. Because, you know, often... I will start from poetry as well sometimes when it comes to my songwriting. So, you know, I'll have these pages and pages and pages of words surrounding a memory or a person or a topic. And then I have to really comb back through and select specific lines that I feel are essential to the story. And it takes a lot of crafting, definitely. Well, I'm about to do that embarrassing thing where I quote some of your poetry lines to you (laughs) because I was so struck by them. In your poem soft to your impact you write I have always considered myself difficult to hate and difficult to love Mm. now I'm not making the assumption that all of the poems written in the first person are about you Mm. but I wonder if that is something that you think about yourself yeah I think it is in a way and I think it actually came from a conversation with a friend where they said almost that exact thing and then I thought of myself and also it being something I learned at parties which is like the second part of that line and I think that sense of not feeling like you're someone who people have active animosity towards but also having those kind of undertones of questioning why people love you and what they see in you and I think that there is this kind of back and forth in my mind and in a lot of people's minds I think about you know feeling like what they're doing and who they are is something that's worthy of love and appreciation than maybe having those days where you find it harder to see what people see in you I guess in a way there's a sense of detachment yes that you're observing yourself yeah well I personally think you're impossible to hate and incredibly easy to (laughs) (laughs) interactions I've had with you (laughs) in simulcrum you ask the question how do the badly loved undo Mm. which I thought was so beautiful Mm. how do you undo that knowledge and how do you learn to give yourself is that what you were getting at with yeah 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 exactly I think I don't know the answer to that question to me is that you can enter into a practice of healing and trying to kind of undo damage and scarring from the past but ultimately you can't undo anything that you've done or said that has happened to you it's very much about moving into the future and kind of reframing your perspective and trying to surround yourself with people who love you well and to try and love yourself well and approach yourself with compassion. Yeah, and I think the answer to that question is that you can't and that's a difficult thing, but also a beautiful thing in terms of the lessons that you learn you will carry with you forever in a way. It's very like the message of this podcast. Mm, (laughs) But it's an interesting thing talking to you, given that you are 23, I'm 44 and it's taken me until my 
40s to mm. understand the difference between bad love and good love mm. and to understand that there are some things that we've been socially conditioned to believe are mm. romantic mm. but actually I would now put in the bucket of bad love mm. so that idea of someone paying you an inordinate amount of passionate attention mm. and things being slightly unstable but you're sort of mm. drawn in and you think that that's part of the passion mm. actually now I understand that that can make you feel insecure and can sometimes be evidence of narcissism exactly how would you distinguish between bad and good love I think that for me it's honestly about sitting down alone and checking in with yourself how does it make you feel in your body does it make you feel insecure like you're kind of on unsteady ground all the time walking on eggshells all the time feeling like the love might be withdrawn without any reason yeah. or if it's something that makes you feel secure and you feel safe is that is there that underlying buzz of anxiety that you're kind of mistaking for excitement you know are you trying to convince yourself that this is something that you want I think when you sit down and really sit with yourself and journal it out you can come to a lot of conclusions about whether it's bad love or good love yeah, you need to start with loving yourself and that mm. starts with knowing yourself. Exactly. A few more questions before I come on to your failures because your failures are so brilliant and mm, profoundly expressed. I can't wait to talk about them. Do you think that speaking French first when mm. you were little has changed the way that you look at the English language? Mm. That sort of sense of remove that we were talking about when you yeah. see yourself, do you think you have that about English? Definitely. I mean, I guess I don't know what my approach to language would be if I, if I hadn't yeah. learned French. But yeah, that sense of detachment, that sense of kind of not being as deeply familiar with the structure of the language and having... It's not that I feel like I don't have a grasp of it, but I think that it has given me this playfulness when it comes to the language and maybe not adhering as clearly to the rules of the English language and sometimes mm. the rules of the French language kind of making their way into the way that I approach English and just this general fluidity I think with language and also a love of language you know I think that I've always had this really distinct love of language and I think that comes from having learned another one early on as well. Would you ever write a song in French? Yeah, I've tried to, you know, it's something that I'm really practicing. But because I was taught French by my mum at home, my grasp of it isn't very poetic, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. It's all very like practical domestic language being like, <laughs> clean your room. I'll be home at this time, <laughs> clean your room, that kind of energy. Um, but I'm trying to read a little bit more and watch a lot more French films and stuff to kind of get myself in that mode. Yeah. What was school like for you? I was a very studious child. I was very much a perfectionist. I was very much someone who was focused on like getting perfect grades. But juxtaposed with that, I was also a very sporty kid. So I was playing like hockey at a very high level, doing cross country, doing athletics, balancing those two things. But I think I was always someone who was like very highly disciplined and, and driven. And I think in a way that made me quite hard on myself. And I think that's something that I'm always trying to temper in a way. But did you find school easy because you strike me as someone who is so empathetic mm. and porous in many mm. ways that you take on other people's energy and sometimes school isn't very forgiving yeah. to that kind of person yeah definitely I think I found good people around me quite early which was really nice but I did definitely find myself especially you're just mixed in with so many different characters and people who are like a lot louder and more abrasive or people who you know, aren't super kind. So I think that absorbing that and feeling that kind of turbulence of school and being somebody who, yeah, as I said before, was very sensitive, was interesting. But then I think having had music as an anchor mm -hmm. meant that I was kind of drawn to like 
the weirder, more creative, artsy kids that would just kind of hang out in the library and stuff. And I think that I very much built a little refuge from that chaos. Mm. Mm. Well, talking about arty kids and creating community, one of your friends and now collaborators is Phoebe Bridges. Mm-hmm. And you've described her as having a big brother energy. Yeah. What does that, how does that manifest itself? She does. Her and like the rest of the boy genius lot as well. I don't know. It just feels, I can tell that she is just looking out for me. And the first time we met, she asked me how old I was. And I was like, oh, I'm 19. And she was like, you're really good. You're really good. And I think that having those little moments of affirmation, I think especially when I was still figuring out who I was and as an artist and having her join me on stage and her being very much like my cheerleader and giving me space, you know, to come to her whenever with whatever, I think has that, yeah, that kind of big brother energy of somebody who you feel is looking out for you is really nice. Well, I love Pegasus, the song that features her. It's so beautiful. Let's get on to your failures. Mm -hmm. Your first failure in your words, is your failure to create an undeniably perfect piece of work. Mm. Tell us about that and about whether you find that quite crippling. Yeah, I think that I've always been somebody who has looked for a very solid and specific bar of success, being like, when I get here, I will feel successful Mm -hmm. and the world will see me as successful and I will be like, I don't know, this sense of when I'm here, I will be anointed as this and, yes. th- and it will be solid and I'll be able to feel it and know it completely. And it will never be objective in that way. You know, art will always be subjective. There'll always be people who don't like it and who love it and who think it's the best and who think it's ignorable. And like, I think that it's something that I've wrestled with a lot, especially being the kind of child that I was telling you about before, where it would be like you would get an A star in this subject and that would mean that you were at this kind of level of achievement And also inspiration coming and going so freely is that you can sit down at your desk every day for X amount of hours and it still might not come. Mm. And that acceptance that things are kind of outside of my control is definitely something that I've wrestled with. But I don't know. I think for me, it's been a practice and I think I'm really getting to a place where especially feeling like I want to have a career that is a long career The fact that there will be certain records or books or things that I create that will be received differently and that it's a journey of ebbs and flows, I think has really helped me get to a place where I just want to create something that feels good in this moment rather than something that everyone will see as perfect because that doesn't really exist, you know? Yes. And if something actually is perfect, it's also clinical. There's a a separation Mm. from what it is to be human. When something Mm. is perfect, we can't relate to it in Mm. a way because we're all imperfect humans. And so much of your work strikes me as being about the intimacy of Mm. being flawed. Mm. Exactly. And I think even in the way that you might record a song, for example, a lot of my songs were just recorded in an apartment and you can hear like imperceptible little like creaks of couches and breaths and like plosives. And I think when you listen sometimes to a pop song where a lot of the kind of human imperfections of a voice have been smoothed out and the drums are like perfectly quantized and on beat, it can feel a little bit cold, like it doesn't have that same human warmth. And as you say, I think even in what I speak about in my songs, that sense of kind of talking about moments where I was wounded or where I was in the wrong or things that I still haven't quite figured out or regrets. I think it's a lot of it is about kind of exposing those flaws and also thinking about the music that I love and the musicians that I look up to 
they all have that element of of rawness. You know, when you listen to a Joni Mitchell song or, you know, even when you listen to the production of someone like Pharrell, like there is these, it just feels rough around the edges because someone has put themselves into it mm. and we are all kind of complicated. So, yeah. Love the word plosive. Just had to say that. <laughs> is there anything that you consider to be a perfect work of art that someone else has produced? Mm, that's interesting. Because now I feel like I shy away from the word perfect in general, but perfect to me, hmm. It might be perfectly imperfect in a way. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. And that, yeah. that's exactly what I'm thinking about. I think Bluets by Maggie Nelson is a big one for me that I truly, truly love. I think, as you say, it's this balance between something that feels, I don't know. I just think it hit me in my spirit in a really specific way. And it's a book that I can keep revisiting and just constantly mine new nuggets of gold from. And I think that there's something, for me, that feels perfect. Something that you could, you know, desert island this mode where you can choose this album like Post by Bjork maybe, where I think that I can learn something from it and I can do so for the rest of my life. I think mm. that there's something beautiful in that, something that feels like it has almost endless layers to it and that you can never quite get to the bottom of it, definitely. And where do you think that drive to want to create something of an exceptionally high level comes from? Because hearing you talk, I feel, albeit I'm absolutely not a singer-songwriter or a lyrical <laughs> poet, but I can relate to a lot of it. Like, I mm. think I have that kind of drive where I believe or hope or have done for so long that one day I will reach a certain level and then I can relax and then yeah. I would have proved something. And for me, I think it comes from an existential fear of being unlovable. Mm. And I wonder where it comes from for you and if you've yeah. thought about that. yeah. I'm not sure where exactly it comes from, but I think I can almost equate it to wanting to earn love by being mm. like, if I am useful and if I try this hard and if I'm this productive, then I have kind of attained like lovability in a way. And that doesn't really make sense because when I think about the people in my life that I love, it's not because they do X amount of things for me or they are like this good at their job, you know, it has nothing to do with that. But I think it's always been something that's very disconnected from anyone around me or how I was treated by my parents or friends or anything like that just always been this like inner thing that I struggled to dislodge I'm not sure where it came from really well I think we all live in a society that encourages us to believe that we are mm. capitalist units of production yeah. and it's quite hard to dismantle yeah. all of that or to understand how much of it is you and how mm. much of it is them yeah exactly and I think also just within music something that really stresses urgency and you know when you have this kind of wave and you seem like you're having a moment it's like oh well we have to ride the wave whilst we have it yeah. it may never come around again you know you may never have this opportunity again and that creates a sense of urgency and working to the point of burnout but I think when you trust that things may come around again and that you know if you want to be doing this for a long time it has to be in a sustainable way I think that that's when I don't know anyone who's fully got to that point though of like knowing themselves and being in touch with their bodies enough to maybe reject huge opportunities for the sake of preserving their peace. But that's something I kind of aspire to. <laughs> God knows if I'll get there. But When you were growing up, did you ever feel like you would have to do a more conventional job? Yeah, definitely. What kind of things were you thinking of? I was thinking of being a lawyer. I was thinking of being a journalist. I knew it would be something in like words in some capacity. I was going to do English literature at UCL. That was my path very much. And yeah, I think that just from the 
teachers around me and the people around me. I remember a boy in my class saying that he wanted to be a producer, like a music producer. And everyone in the class, and including the teacher, were kind of like, ah, oh, ha, ha, yeah, okay, but like, what's the real plan? And so I often felt like saying that I wanted to be a creative person was something that was almost impossible. So it was this very like secret little hope that I kept just for myself, though. I did always feel like maybe I would become somebody with a different job that would always be quietly whittling away at songs or a novel or something in my spare time, and I never felt like it was going to be my whole life. Mm. Mm. How do you feel now that it is? I think maybe because it was approached in that sense of it might be an impossible dream. I still have that sense of like, it may just all crumble. Like maybe I just had this moment in, and I'll look back on it as being a moment that I had like in my youth and then it kind of all dissolved. So I think I find it really hard to not want to hold on to it frantically because I feel so lucky to be here. And I think I'm gradually learning to have the confidence to even claim myself to be a poet, even here as a writer, like you holding my book and me like struggling to fully claim that yet. Mm. But I do know that there's nothing else in the world that I want to, would want to give myself to in this way. So I just feel lucky and it's complicated, basically. You mentioned there about the pressing urgency, the sort of need to say yes when mm. big opportunities present themselves. And you very honestly and courageously in September 2022, you cancelled a lot of your tour dates mm. and you said publicly, I am burnt out. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about that time in your life, how it was feeling and, mm. and why you decided to do that? Yeah, I think that, you know, I went from the pandemic where we were all very much at home feeling like, you know, we were in our little bubble with our families or whoever to touring the world relentlessly, you know, to doing like hundreds and hundreds of shows in a year. And I just had no time to replenish in any way. And I was just working to the point of it would be, you know, play a show, fly at like 3 a.m., arrive at the next place, do press all day, maybe like write a little bit of a song, play a show again. And, you know, I felt so lucky to be there. There was this intense sense of gratitude, but also this intense sense of like knowing that I couldn't work at this pace forever. Linking back to what I said about being a child, I wanted to show that I was grateful for where I was at and I wanted to seize every opportunity. And I wanted to, like my biggest nightmare was to be like, oh, okay, I didn't get to where I wanted to be because I didn't work hard enough. Mm -hmm. I think that was something that I really kept at the back of my mind. And I did get to a place where I was just completely exhausted. I just had not even a drop of energy left. And I knew that I just had to go and rest and just come back to myself because I felt like I had lost myself a little bit, like the person behind the artist and had kind of been forgotten. And I had to go home and just come back to myself and be in the garden and be with my people who kind of make me feel seen and happy. And then I came back feeling more refreshed than ever. Just, I think I just had to put my foot down and kind of advocate for myself and for my happiness in a way that I hadn't really before. And I really learnt my boundaries and I try and move forward in a way now that is a way that is very boundaried in a way that it wasn't before. I read something very interesting that you said about boundaries, which I'm probably going to mangle unless I can find it in my notes, which is about how when you're creating work, that's it. You said the best work is the truest work. 
And you have to figure out how to set up boundaries after the fact. Mm. Because when you're creating the work, you can't be boundaried. Mm. And I thought that was such an insightful explanation because I, like you, often struggle with boundaries. Mm. And I think sometimes if you're trying to connect mm. and understand what it is to be human, it is very difficult then to try and ring fence things yeah. for yourself. Mm. So... How do you do it now? Like, how do you know when it is right for you to say no? I think I think it's kind of what we were talking about before about the difference between bad and good love. Like I've become a lot better at checking in with myself at the end of the day. And that can be in a positive sense, being like, I had a great day. Like I want to make a note of it. I want to freeze the moment and I want to know what it is that makes me feel good. Or checking in with myself if I feel just really drained. And maybe it's about restructuring a day. Maybe it's about figuring out what leaves me depleted and what replenishes me. But as you say, I think as someone who I just like love speaking with people and I love making things and I love to give and give and give. And I think that it's kind of against my nature in a way to kind of put a stop to that and, mm. and kind of put up a boundary. But I think even getting to that place last year where I felt so under-resourced kind of reminded me of the importance of that and I'm still figuring out how to do it in my way yeah I've been lucky enough to see you perform twice mm -hmm. once on Sunday brunch which <laughs> <laughs> as we were talking about before was just like a fever dream yeah, of a TV it was so delirious. yeah that was, that was something truly it really was but the thing that strikes me about your performance is that wherever you are performing, there is a, a truthfulness to it mm, thank you it's such a beautiful thing to witness and I can only imagine that you have to bring a certain amount of personal energy to that yeah. every time. And so it must also be very depleting mm. if you give that kind of performance in a massive stadium mm. or on the Pyramid Stage at Glastonbury. Do you then need to go home and have a massive bath with loads of Epsom salts and just like <laughs> kind of. detoxify? Yeah, in a way, definitely. Yeah. Like I honestly just, I have to just be completely silent for at least like two hours and just put on a podcast or put on my music. Even after a show, I'll usually go back to the tour bus and I'll just watch a documentary. I'm watching that one about centenarians right now, the Blue Zones one in Netflix, which I love. But yeah, I do have to do things afterwards to replenish myself and just to kind of ground myself because it is just such like an adrenaline fueled two hours where you are so perceived and especially on stage I'm always just like running around and it's hot and people are kind of sending you all that energy and I'm meeting fans afterwards and it feels just like a very extroverted pursuit I do have to just kind of like curl up by myself and just do things that bring me back to my body in a way yeah and is your partner respectful of that because yes. yeah she also is a performer yeah, yeah no she is and I think that being with somebody who has the same job means that we both kind of understand that need for space or that need for just solitude at times and also what it feels like to be an artist and to make an album and those moments of kind of creative block or being excited for the other when things are flowing and it feels really good and yeah it's really lovely this 
podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Your second failure is your failure to save people. Mm. Tell us why you chose this one. Yeah, I think that it's a big part of my personality to kind of see somebody in need. And and it's not even necessarily a friend or someone close. It can be a complete stranger and just have that real urge to be like, okay, what can we do? We can do this and that and kind of try and construct a plan. Because it's always very plan-based with me. But then realizing that there are things that people have to come to themselves. And I think a big one is, you know, if I have a friend who maybe wants to be a creative and I see their potential and I'm like, we can do this, that, and I can put you in this session and blah, blah, blah. But also knowing that people have to get there in their own time. And obviously being a supportive friend is one thing, but then kind of trying to create this plan based on maybe what I would do as well, not what they would do, I think is sometimes counterproductive. And I think having to kind of control that urge to make everything okay when there are things that I can't make okay, or that maybe will never be okay, or that someone has to heal from in their way. It's something that I found quite difficult, I think. And I still always have that urge to kind of save people that either maybe don't want to be saved or can't be saved or putting myself in positions where I'm putting a lot of energy into someone who maybe isn't necessarily very kind or maybe has things that they have to unknot themselves. And I'm kind of like receiving, I'm on the negative end of them kind of healing and expelling energy. So something that I'm learning to balance, but I haven't yet got there, I don't think. And has it ever led to a situation of resentment where you have been trying to do this for someone and they've actually rejected it in some mm. way? Is that the, is that what's led to this realisation? Honestly, no. I think I, it's just been me being, like, completely exhausted at mm. times. Especially being, like... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially being, like, quite a, a porous person emotionally. Yes. Just also finding like maybe I was I was carrying other people's sadness in a way where I would just find myself feeling really depleted and sad and low or even really anxious and being like, this doesn't feel like it's coming from me. It feels like maybe it's something that I've absorbed from another person. 
And then also maybe becoming a person's sole support system and really feeling that weight of responsibility on my shoulders. And again, having done more of those check-ins based on my professional life, doing that a little bit more in terms of my personal life, being like, oh, I'm carrying a lot and maybe I shouldn't be. Mm. Mm. I recently sat next to Elizabeth Gilbert at dinner and she's a hero of mine. She wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Mm. And she is also someone who is an extraordinary empath and who takes on other people's energies. And she said that she had been given this piece of advice, which is when someone is sitting next to you or perhaps they meet you at one of your shows and they want to share their story. And often their story can be quite traumatic because your work has opened up something so honest in them. Mm. And she said that she now mentally says to herself, I acknowledge your magic and I don't need to take it on. She'll like say that in her own head, mm. just to ensure that there is a sort of psychological separation. Because otherwise, you're right that it does mm. get to be beautiful, but so draining. Yeah, definitely. And I think that you can hold space for that person's story and be grateful that your art or what you've created has moved them in that way. But I think that it can leave a residue on you if you don't then kind of have a little bit of a cleanse and not carry all of these stories with you. Because I think most artists have that sensibility or that ability to kind of take on, just be easily moved and easily affected. And I think I've had moments where I found myself feeling really low just because of incredibly traumatic stories that have kind of been shared with me. So I think it's not about being ungrateful for the fact that people are sharing it with you, but maybe just not taking it on into your own life and through your own day. Yes, you can mm. see it, but you don't always have to feel it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are you quite unique in your family? Mm, <laughs> I think so. I'm definitely like the the emotional one for sure. Yeah. And like the kind of like more woo-woo creative one. I think that there isn't really anyone in my family actually that has a creative job in any way. And I think I've always very much been the the sensitive one and the person who wanted to pick up the guitar and go to the record shops and write the poetry. And my brother is a philosophy student and my parents are both teachers. It's interesting because there was very much this culture of conversation and love and my dad would play audiobooks and play jazz. But I think that that drive to write and to express myself did very much come from within. And yeah, I definitely think that I'm like the, the unique one, I guess, in the family. Were they and are they worried about you? No, honestly, no. Because I think that because of the kind of child that I was, even the fact that I was launching myself into a space that was very unfamiliar to them, they were like, I know, we know that if she is going to do this, she is going to do it like as hard and as well mm. as she can. And I think that I've always been quite a grounded person like, I don't think that they ever thought that I was going to be lost in, like, quote-unquote, like, showbiz, or I guess. And I think that they always very much trusted me to just make my own decisions about who I was going to be, which I really love and respect them for. And they come to my shows and they came to my reading last night. And, you know, it's nice to include them in my world because I think it can feel quite abstract at times. So, yeah, they've kind of just allowed me to be, which is nice. And your brother's a philosophy mm -hmm. student. You must have great conversations with him. Yeah. About the meaning of life. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, we do. We, we very much get into that. Yeah. And it's beautiful to see, he's my younger brother, and to see like his passion for something that's slightly outside of my realm, but just to learn from him. And there's something beautiful about learning things from an older, uh, younger sibling, sorry, and like seeing them kind of growing up and grow their own interests, which are really nice. 
time for me to quote your song lyrics again. All right, so, let's do it. <laughs> in Bruiseless, you sing, I wish I was bruiseless. Almost everyone that I love has been abused and I am included. I feel so much guilt that I could not guard more people from harm. Hmm. And that to me just completely dovetailed with this failure. And as well as being so lyrically expressed, almost everyone that I love has been abused and I am included. Where did that line come from? Mm. I think that it's from looking into myself and looking around me and all these people that I hold so close to my heart and people that I genuinely feel have given me just a wave of love, a consistent wave of love, have been hurt by somebody and hurt by somebody quite deeply. And usually it's a wound that they carry with them that I cannot heal. And I think that the process of writing this album kind of brought that up in me. The fact that, you know, whenever I'm describing characters in my songs, there is always this sense of, you know, wanting to save, wanting to save, wanting to heal things that maybe can never be healed. And there's another song called Purple Phase where it, the lyric is, Savior instinct tells me, use your hands to drag her to peace. That sense of like, wanting to physically bring someone closer to peace, closer to healing, but knowing that it's impossible. And I think that acknowledging the pain in myself and the pain in others and, you know, being there to support them through their journey, but not being able to physically use my hands to drag anyone anywhere because it's a very personal journey. And I think that was all encapsulated in those few lines. Yeah. That concept of being bruiseless is such mm. a beautiful word. Mm. Do you genuinely wish you were bruiseless? Or mm. do you appreciate, as we were touching on earlier, that all of the wounds have led you here? Really? Mm. I think that it's both, you know, because I think sometimes pain can just be pain. I don't think it always has to be useful or have led you anywhere. I think you can just be like this, that I was hurt and, and that sucks. Yeah. But I do think that in general, the lessons that I've learned have kind of brought me to a place where I feel more sure about myself and where I understand myself better and where I move through a world more gently and I attract people to me who treat me with that same respect. And whenever I feel like somebody isn't giving me that, I, I'm confident enough to kind of move away from that person. I think learning lessons means that you can kind of curate your life in a way that you have good people around you and that you can recognize when someone maybe doesn't have the best intentions your album is called my soft machine mm -hmm. i understand that's a line from a joanna hogg mm -hmm. movie what does it represent to you that idea mm. my soft machine to me is it's my body it's my soul it's my eyes and i think that a lot of this record is just about reality filtering through me in the way that I experience things, not necessarily describing things as they are, but things as I've seen them, a kind of like visual, the visual snow that kind of clouds the way that I see things. And I think that's very much colored by the things that I've been through and the people that I love and the experiences that I've had, the conversations that I've had kind of inform the way that I see the world. Mm -hmm. Your third failure is your failure to fit into others' assumptions of who you are mm. and of what you make because of what you look like mm. and how you present. Such a good failure because 
in so many ways, it's not yours. It's yeah. theirs. Mm. But explain to us a bit more what this means to you. Yeah, I think that people, even when it comes to, you know, what kind of music I make, people assume that it's hip hop or R&B. You know, I remember being a child and talking about listening to audiobooks with my dad in the car. And people were genuinely surprised, kind of in that sense of like, oh, I didn't know that like black people did that. You know, it was very strange. And and I was always super perplexed by it because, you know, I love listening to like folk music and alternative music and heavier music. And I love like dressing in this kind of androgynous way and having my hair dyed red and making soft music. And for me, that was just who I was. I didn't know why anyone would expect anything else from me. And, you know, when it comes to my music being categorized in like a lazier way, it used to be something that made me quite sad because I was like, why would, why would you think that? Have you even listened to what it is that I've made? But I think over time, I've just kind of accepted that there are people who will do that and it has nothing to do with me, really. Just seeing something like that and being like, that isn't mine to hold because that's something that you're kind of putting onto me. And one of the most beautiful things about doing what I do has been seeing like kids coming up to me in the street being like, oh, you've inspired me to write poetry or, oh, I'm black, but I make like experimental, strange electronic music. And I've always felt like I couldn't make that kind of music and that people wouldn't take me seriously. And then them kind of starting the adventure of putting that music out and being themselves. So I think by being myself and by not paying attention to those assumptions, not putting any weight in them whatsoever, it's just kind of made me stronger in who I am. And it's one of my favourite things about myself, I think. Do you think you went through a phase of feeling that you had to explain your identity? Mm, No, I don't think I ever really did. I think I was asked it a lot in interviews in terms of what is it like being queer in music or a woman in music or black in music and I I started kind of not really wanting to answer those questions anymore because I was like I can just be I don't really feel like I should have to explain myself to you or what my place is in the creative world I think that it's enough for me to just be myself and make things and I feel no obligation now to kind of explain it to someone outside of my world what it looks like and what it means to me I think it's enough for me to just be Mm. Can you tell us the the high snobiety? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Story. I think so. Yeah, I can't remember what the exact title was, but I think it was like 50 best women in hip hop or something like that. And I was included on that list. And, you know, my initial response was just like, oh God, not again. But I kind of twisted it in a way when I posted about it to be like, if you're a black person and you're making electronic music, you're making rock music, you're in a band, you're making things that are outside of what people would expect, then keep doing that. It's like, you have a seat at the table. Like the way that we kind of rile against this misunderstanding is just by continuing to be ourselves, continuing to kind of build community around ourselves and just being unapologetic. And I think it was important to kind of maybe not approach that with hostility and like, how could you outrage? more as a call to kind of empower people who are doing a similar thing to what I'm doing and just to kind of affirm their place in the creative world. You tweeted about it Mm -hmm. and then, and it was a very kind of to the point, eloquent, powerful tweet. And then they replied with a love heart. Yeah, (laughs) I know. (laughs) 
You were like, yet again, yeah. you're not seeing what I'm saying here. Yeah, but it was very, yeah, it was exactly that. The love heart was really the cherry on the cake. I do feel like maybe an intern had hold of their Twitter and just had seen that I had tagged them in something and just did a little love heart. I mean, we started off this conversation talking about the importance of having the right people around you. Mm. Has that always been the case for you professionally? Mm. Have you felt seen and supported for who you are rather Mm. than having projections of who others think you should be within the industry? Always, you know, I've had the same manager since I was 17 for the last six years. And even at the beginning, before I was signed, I would go into meetings and people would be like, you're going to be the next Rihanna. I was like, what? (laughs) I mean, not that I have anything. I love Rihanna, but um, it was, yeah. But I think that in those moments, the people around me were always like, you know, only you know what you want to be. And the idea of someone being like, we want to make you a carbon copy of this successful black person was just very strange. And I've always been surrounded by people, especially being on an independent label, I think, who just allow me to be and very much kind of make the effort to facilitate my vision rather than kind of imprinting anything onto me. I think I've always had a very clear sense of what I want to do and who I am and just like a clear sense of vision. No one's ever tried to kind of crowbar me into something else. So I think they know that I'm just very stubborn, so I just wouldn't listen in the first place. What was the process like of being interviewed when your debut album came out? Mm. Because for all that there are wonderful newspaper and magazine journalists out there, and I used to be one of those journalists, but Mm. there are certain lazy questions, I imagine, that come up again and again and again. Mm. And did you, was it exhausting? Were you drained having to explain yourself Mm. I definitely think I did get to that point especially the fact that I was young you know I was 18 and it was also during the pandemic which was such an emotionally fraught time and I was doing all of the press remotely kind of doing hours and hours just like at my laptop in my parents house but then I think after a while I really felt like I built up a sense of assertiveness enough to be like actually I don't really feel comfortable answering that and I think setting up that boundary really gave me a different approach to interviews and it felt like it was something that was constructive and interesting and that it felt like an exchange rather than someone probing and me feeling obliged to answer so I think very quickly I I found the right kind of language to set that boundary up. Why do you think there is this obsession with asking probing invasive questions that are often very personal? I honestly don't really know But I guess maybe it's about people wanting to always know a little bit more than what you've told them. And that sense of kind of wanting to have at least a tiny new fragment of information that can maybe drive people to read the article. But I'm not sure, honestly, especially when people have are creating work that clearly says what they want to say. That idea of kind of wanting to really push further into something or you know, especially pushing people in a way where they're clearly uncomfortable. I don't really know where that comes from. But I also think not everybody does that. Like, I think I've encountered so many journalists who just have a true love of journalism and ask very, like, respectful, insightful questions. So I don't think that it's everyone. You now live in LA, Mm -hmm. and we've chatted about how much we both love LA. (laughs) And I wonder if part of the reason you love it there is because you don't need to fit into the same assumptions Mm. like there's something do you find it a freeing place to be definitely I think it's definitely a very freeing place to be I think it also 
just attracts so many people from so many different parts of the world. And I think there are also so many creative pockets, whether that be in film or music or literature, sculpture, whatever it might be. And I think the community that I found as well is full of like oddballs and eccentric creatives. And I think that I've just found people who accept me truly as I am. And that's been so beautiful, especially with the nature surrounding California and the sunshine and just that sense of being able to, you know, have a peaceful life, but also dip into the slipstream of like work and excitement and moving fast. It's just been the perfect place for me to be, really. What's your favourite hike? My favourite hike? I think, okay, so there's one, there's one that's a secret hike that I'll tell you about afterwards. Because that's like, because I am so happy about the fact that 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 is untouched. But there's this one hike in Topanga called Red Rocks, which is, as you would imagine, just these like huge, ancient, prehistoric kind of deep red clay rocks. And you kind of go through this valley and it's quite isolated and you get to the top of this hill and you can see like the very far reaches of the city and it's beautiful mm-hmm. I like the kind of out of the way hikes because obviously there's the like Runyon Canyon and those kind of yeah. like city hikes but I like the weird far away ones and so many people don't know that LA does have this extraordinary nature around mm. it where you feel like you're so far out of the city and yet mm. as you say you can still like dip back into the city should you want it mm. and also I when I first went to LA and I lived there for three months at the end of 2015 I was also that very skeptical British person who was like a hike mm. it's just a walk yeah but actually they're not just walks <laughs> there's, a, there's a fair amount of gradient involved. I like that <laughs> I like the hike defending no yes. I feel the same I also thought it's like you go for a walk with some like walking sticks that you don't need but there are some pretty (laughs) steep ones definitely are you going to continue writing poetry Mm. and do you think you might write full-length prose one day Mm, I would love to honestly I think it's something that I find quite daunting but it's definitely something that I want to do at some point maybe when I've kind of my existence is a little bit more grounding. I think if I were to approach a full-length novel, I would really want to like sit and bed in and really be focused on that for a number of months or years. But I definitely want to continue writing and just put out kind of regular collections, whether that be short stories or essays. And what are you working on at the moment? I'm just kind of at the beginning. I'm at the, what I call the fueling stage, where I'm just kind of collecting fragments and words and memories and hoping that that's going to become the clay for my next projects, but not really working with any kind of intention, just kind of making for the sake of it at this point. Are you very conscious when you are in that fueling stage of not taking on too much other outside influence in terms of you need to be alive to the world around you rather Mm. than being on your phone? Mm, Definitely. Okay. How do you manage that? I don't know I think it's just about being very intentional about it like whenever I'm writing or I'm in that creative mode I very much like ring fence off that time like those few months to do only that I don't do anything else and I do just put my phone away and I don't find that super difficult like I'm not somebody who's that attached to my phone or technology in general and then I just like plunge into being in the world because so much of writing is having things to write about you know you can't write in a void or about being on a tour bus or something like that so I just really throw myself into living life and being around new people and going on little adventures. You were talking about Maggie Nielsen and how that might be your Desert Island Disc book. Mm. What would be your Desert Island Disc piece of music? Have you thought about it? An album or just one song? I'm going to ask for just one song. Actually, give me both. Give me both. Oh, just one song is too much. Okay. I'm just going 
on pure instinct. I think In Rainbows by Radiohead would be the one for me. There's this sense of warmth, minimalism, melancholy, passion, yearning. I think it's my favorite Radiohead album and Radiohead's my favorite band. I just feel like I could find new things in it for the rest of my life. And then song-wise, gosh, that's such a hard one. Maybe my second favorite album is an album called Carrying Lowell by Sufjan Stevens. And I think maybe I would pick a song called All of Me Wants All of You from that record. And it just feels so delicate. You know, there's this sense of this relationship that's kind of slowly fragmenting and it feels so tender and his voice is just like so light and like gossamer thin over these like sparkling guitars. I just love it. Oh, that's my listening sorted for the rest of the day. Thank you. And I notice as you're sitting opposite me that you have tattoos. Oh, many. Yes, many, many they're many all tattoos. over the place. Yeah. What's your latest tattoo been? I think it was probably this kind of interesting, oh, strange yes. rune thing that I found. Rune? It's just, yeah, I like having some of the, the tattoos that I have are just kind of these little symbols that in the moment, for example, this one that's this little kind of like star is basically me at the centre and then that sense of being, having this kind of sense of adventure when it comes to creativity and blossoming in many different directions at once. So yeah, I just love to kind of adorn myself in this way. I think that it very much tells a story and I can remember exactly where I was and in my life and who I was with when I got each of them. So I love tattoos. Mm. Do you have any? I do. They're sort of cop-out ones where I can hide them. (laughs) I have one here which says Only Connect. Mm. I have a similar sort of star one Mm. to you there Mm. and an arrow here. But they Mm. are very addictive. Mm. It's true. (laughs) It is Um, true. Arlo, I've loved this conversation so much. Mm. It's been meandering and wise in the most beautiful ways. Thank you. I wonder if I could draw it to a close by asking you... If you feel, we've been talking about failure, but do you feel successful? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I don't know if I do. I feel like I can recognise that I've had success, but it's hard for me to say with confidence that I feel successful. I feel like I'm still reckoning with a sense of imposter syndrome that might never fully go away, but I can still be proud of what I've built, I think. I think imposter syndrome is such an interesting one. I found that one of the things that has really helped is doing more of the thing. Mm. And because as you get older, you carry on doing more of the thing. Mm. Actually, that really helps. Because even if you don't believe fundamentally that you're worthy or you question your own talent, Mm. the fact is that there's more of it to fall back on. That you're like, oh, well, I I did do it for all those many thousands of hours. So I guess I can. Mm, And and maybe it's a function of your youth, albeit with such a wise soul, that you still feel imposter. When you absolutely shouldn't, you completely deserve to be here and to claim your power within this. Thank you, yeah. Arlo Parks, I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on How to Fail. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.